0: Welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of Laurel Canyon Country. I'm so happy that you're listening to this podcast. It has been a labor of love for me for a while, doing all of this research, reading a bunch of different books and watching a bunch of interviews. So I'm really happy that I'm finally just doing it and getting this out there. And I'm really happy to have an audience, even if it's only a handful of people that might be listening. Like I said, this podcast is really going to focus on the country rock scene that grew out of Los Angeles in the late 60s and also kind of my journey with discovering this music. I grew up in a fairly conservative home. I can specifically remember wanting to watch TV shows like Solid Gold as a young kid and my father turning off the picture so I couldn't see the Solid Gold dancers. He was fine with the music He just didn't want me to see the scantily clad girls, and that was okay. I was a young kid. I just wanted to hear the music. I loved all forms of music growing up. The TV show I was allowed to watch, however, was Hee Haw, and we would often watch that as a family. So I can remember seeing Johnny Cash and Buck Owens and Roy Clark all performing on the show All of the cheesy jokes and little skits that they would do. And just being thrilled that I got to watch this every weekend as a kid with my family. My parents' record collection consisted of a lot of folk music. The Smothers Brothers, the New Christy Minstrels, and Peter, Paul, and Mary. My dad liked to listen to the Old Time Gospel Hour on Saturday mornings. Hank Williams, the Leuven Brothers, all of these classic southern acts singing hymns and gospel songs. So maybe that's what eventually drew me to country music, drew me back to this Laurel Canyon scene. I don't know. So when you're talking about this music that grew out of Laurel Canyon and this Laurel Canyon country sound, where do you go to find the beginning? Guess starting with the beginning, maybe one of the most influential and seminal Laurel Canyon country bands of all time. It contained founding members of the Eagles, the Birds, the Flying Burrito Brothers, Hearts and Flowers. Their influence is still felt in Americana circles to this day. And in fact, the songs from their first record can still be heard at any bluegrass festival anywhere around the world. But if I'm honest, That's because all of the songs they ever recorded were in the public domain for contractual and financial reasons. Talking, of course, about the world-famous Scottsville Squirrel Barkers. If you've never heard of the Scottsville Squirrel Barkers, that's okay. I hadn't heard of them either until I read Chris Hillman's autobiography, Time Between. So I guess we start the story of Laurel Canyon with Chris. Chris Hillman was born in Southern California in December of 1944. He's the third of four children, and he grew up in the little town of Rancho Santa Fe, about 100 miles outside of Los Angeles. All the descriptions and interviews I've read, it was somewhat of a Western suburban paradise. Homes were designed to look like an early Spanish settlement. The area even had guidelines set down by the town to keep the style of the buildings similar. As a baby boomer growing up in this scenic little western town, it really fueled Chris's love of all things cowboy. There was a former silent film star named John Robertson who lived in town and would ride to the post office on his horse with his long white handlebar mustache flowing in the breeze. Hillman had a horse as a young kid, and he and his classmates would often ride their horses into school and uh, hitch them up in the back of the school. It was a really idyllic cowboy way of life for a baby boomer kid growing up in the 1950s. As Chris grew older, his love of all things cowboy began to wane. He began to find a love for music. His parents loved music, and growing up, there was music in his house all the time. Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, and Biddy Goodman. Elvis arrived on the scene when Chris was in fifth grade, and it was a huge cultural shift. Blue, 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 blue. I say blue, blue. He collected the 45s, and his teacher even let some of the kids bring their records into class for dance parties during school. When Chris's older brother left for college in 1956, Hillman inherited his brother's 45 record player. Chris began buying every new single he could. Chuck Berry, Little Richard, the Everly Brothers. But the music bug didn't really hit him until his older sister, Susan, came home from college with her collection of folk records. It was the late 50s, and the folk music boom was in full swing. Chris discovered his sister's collection of Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie, Lead Belly and the like. This is the time, too, that the Kingston Trio were in the Billboard Top 40 singing songs like Tom Dooley, and you just couldn't escape the folk music boom. Around this time, Chris discovered the new Lost City Ramblers from one of his sister's records. And that was it. Chris Hillman had to get a guitar. After pleading with his mom to buy him a guitar, he finally got one on a shopping trip to Tijuana. For $10, Chris got his hands on a cheaply built acoustic. He spent his time trying to learn the songs on all these records he was collecting and all of the records in his sister's collection. After less than a year, he had learned enough on that little guitar that he got his mom to take him to an actual music store in San Diego, where for the princely sum of $100, he purchased a brand new Goya nylon string acoustic guitar. As Chris grew as a guitarist and a musician, his love of old-time music, and in particular bluegrass music, blossomed too. It started with the new Lost City Ramblers, like I mentioned, but it led to other bluegrass bands, and soon the nylon strings on that Goya just didn't work. He couldn't make it sound like Lester Flatt's Martin Flattop. After destroying his Goya nylon string guitar, trying to put steel strings on it, he needed a new instrument. On one trip to San Diego with his brother-in-law, Chris found an old Epiphone flat top acoustic guitar in an antique store. and two payments later, it was his. Reading Chris's story about discovering folk music and destroying a nylon string acoustic guitar, trying to turn it into a steel string, was very relatable. When I was about 15, I got the bug to start playing guitar. The only guitar in our house was an old nylon string that my grandparents had bought for my mother as kind of a joke gift. It was a $20 garage sale special. I put some nylon strings on it and dove into my parents' record collection. While my friends were discovering bands like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd in their parents' record collection, I had Peter, Paul, and Mary and the new Christy Minstrels. So for that, the acoustic guitar worked fine. Really easy to learn these songs with my little Mel Bay chord book. That started me down the path. Not long after doing that, I went to a friend's house and decided that the nylon strings were too quiet. It didn't sound like I wanted it to sound. So I put a package of steel guitar strings on that nylon string guitar. And within a few weeks, the neck had bowed, the bridge had pulled up, and I had completely destroyed that $20 garage sales special. But that was just the start of my musical. Anyway, back to Chris. Hillman was inspired by the sound of this new steel string guitar and his bluegrass heroes. To quote Chris from his autobiography, Time Between, he says, Now that I had the right equipment, I was on my way. I was listening to the new Lost City Ramblers, Flat & Scruggs, the Stanley Brothers, and all the other great bands I was discovering energized me in a way I couldn't explain. It was a combination of the singing and the instrumentation. It was hillbilly jazz, fiery solos, and soulful vocals. Then, when I discovered Bill Monroe and the mandolin, that really did me in. The mandolin hit a nerve like nothing else I had ever experienced in my life before. I had to learn how to play. I was still working on my guitar, having moved to a flat pick instead of using my fingers to play rhythm, but I couldn't stop myself from adding another instrument to the mix. I started out with a few rudimentary chords on an old Italian bowl back mandolin I'd picked up somewhere. At least I had something to get me started, but the real prize was staring at me from a shop window of a small music store in Encinitas called Singing Strings. It was a brand new K mandolin that slightly resembled the high-end Gibson F models that would remain years away from my grasp. So it's 1960 now, and the folk music revival is in full swing. Chris is now a bluegrass junkie and meets another high schooler named John McLaren who is as serious a picker and singer as Chris. They started learning songs and jamming together. Chris would spend all his free time, as most of us burgeoning teenage musicians do, playing and practicing. Soon after meeting John, Hillman discovered that the school janitor played guitar as well. Janitor Bill Smith was the real deal in Chris Hillman's eyes. Smith was from Arkansas, and he played and sang with a small local country band. He taught Chris not just about bluegrass and hillbilly music, about country music as well. Bill turned Chris on to a new singer he had never heard of, Buck Owens in Bakersfield, California. Around this time, money became scarce in the Hillman family. Uh, The family had sold their house and moved closer into town. They had shut down the family gift shop business in the town that they had owned, and hard times settled in. The summer of that year, Hillman's dad took his own life. Chris, his mom, and his younger sister, Kathy, were forced onto a new path. In the summer of 1962, they moved to Los Angeles. Hillman started work as a stock boy at the May Company and finished his high school credits there. During his time in L.A., Chris lived fairly close to the legendary Ashgrove music venue. It was named after a Welsh folk song, and the club thrived during the late 50s and early 60s folk boom. Everyone from Sun House to the New Lost City Ramblers and the Limelighters would play there. Chris would often make it down to the club with his bluegrass-loving pals Kenny Words and Gary Carr. Hillman recalls In interviews and his autobiography, seeing Flatt & Scruggs, the Stanley brothers, and Bill Monroe at the Ash Grove, all within six months of moving to Los Angeles. Also where he would first meet and see the Kentucky Colonels and the legendary brothers Roland and Clarence White. Around this time in 1962, the Kentucky Colonels were still called the Country Boys. Having started life in 1954 as a family band called the Three Little Country Boys, the group was a trio at first featuring Clarence White on guitar, his older brother Roland on mandolin, and little brother Eric Jr. on banjo or double bass, depending on the song. Three years later, the group had added full-time banjo player Billy Ray Latham and dobro player Leroy Mack, and they changed their name to simply the Country Boys. Roland ended up leaving the group for two years for a stint in the Army during this time, at which point a UC Berkeley student named Scott Hambley joined the band and covered for the missing mandolinist. Hambley's playing so impressed Chris that Hillman approached him after a show to ask if he gave lessons. Hambley said he would be happy to teach the young Hillman if he could make his way up to Berkeley, California, where Hambley lived. Hillman, all of 16 years old at this time, caught a train a few days later, and spent two days with Hambly absorbing everything the country boy mandolin player had to show him. So around the end of 1961, Hillman had his bluegrass chops together and a brand-new Gibson F2 mandolin to show them off on. His pals Kenny Wertz and Gary Carr invited Chris to move down to San Diego to join their newly formed bluegrass band, the Scottsville Squirrel Barkers. Hillman quit his job at the May Company as a stock boy, packed up all his belongings on his Honda motorcycle, and made the move to San Diego, California. Times were really lean for the 17-year-old Hillman. He would wind up sleeping in a shack behind a music store owned by Squirrel Barker bandmates Ed Douglas and Larry Murray. The store was called the Blue Guitar. Besides selling instruments, it also provided a place for the Squirrel Barkers to rehearse on weeknights and a place to put on shows every weekend. In addition to their own group, Douglas and Murray would also feature local folk and flamenco music on the weekends as well. As the band got better and their reputation grew, they began to venture outside of the blue guitar and began to play around San Diego, and even ventured further north to play the Hoot Night at Doug Weston's folk club, the Troubadour, on L.A.'s Sunset Strip. As the band was trying to figure out how to book more and more shows around California, the advice kept coming back to them that to book more shows... They needed to have a record out. That was their calling card to the big time in the folk music scene. During one of the trips to the Troubadour, the band decided to look for a record deal. Ed Douglas, the group's bass player, had seen the name Jim Dixon, listed as the engineer and producer on the back of the album Back Porch Bluegrass by the Dillards. The Dillards were another bluegrass band in the Troubadour scene. They were a family group of sorts that featured Doug Dillard on banjo and Rodney Dillard on guitar and dobro. The Dillards had recently landed in Los Angeles after migrating west from Salem, Missouri, and they had gained some national recognition portraying the Darling family on The Andy Griffith Show. Griffith would often have bluegrass musicians on the show, almost just as an excuse for him to be able to pull out his Martin guitar and pick with them. Besides the Dillards, he also had the White Brothers from the Country Boys on several different episodes. The Squirrel Barkers were able to track down Dixon at World Pacific Studios. Dixon invited the band to come down and audition for him and play him a few songs. While Dixon was very encouraging, he didn't sign the Scottsville Squirrel Barkers that day. He did, however, arrange a meeting for them at Crown Records. He also took note of Hillman, the young mandolin player in the band. Crown Records was a small mom-and-pop operation. They had a small office with a little recording studio attached. They didn't even distribute their records to record stores. The Squirrel Barkers record would be sold at the checkout line of grocery stores and various five-and-dime stores in California. While it wasn't the big time, the Scottsville Squirrel Barkers were happy to make this deal and recorded the album right then and there. They cut the whole record in four hours. The band wasn't allowed to do any originals. All the songs would have to be traditional public domain songs so the record company wouldn't have to pay any songwriting royalties. After the sessions were done, the band headed out to Griffith Park for a photo shoot. Within eight hours, the Scottsville Squirrel Barkers had signed a contract, recorded the record, and shot the cover for their first and only album titled bluegrass favorites. A few weeks later, each band member would receive a box from Crown Records containing 10 records for each member and a small check for their services. Sadly, the album's not currently listed on any streaming sites, uh, but it has been reissued on both vinyl and CD, and it really holds up as a solid bluegrass record. Chris Hillman sings lead on the standard Rubin's Train and the Barker's version of Shady Grove and Cripple Creek are personal favorites of mine. If you like traditional bluegrass, it's worth searching out the record to find yourself a copy. The Scottsville Squirrel Barkers didn't last much longer past this, sadly. While they did manage to pick up some better gigs, in the fall of 1963, banjo player Kenny Wirtz and guitarist Gary Carr both got their draft notices. Not wanting to get called up to the Army to have to join the growing conflict on the ground in Vietnam, both men signed up for tours of duty in the Air Force. The band still had a few shows booked after the two members left, and they were able to carry on with Doug Jeffords on guitar and a young, devoted Squirrel Barker fan and banjo player named Bernie Ledden, who was a high school student at the time. Bernie was young, but was already an accomplished banjo player and guitar player, and for a brief moment, it looked like the Scottsville scorebarkers would carry on. Sadly, it wasn't meant to be. Bernie's father, a nuclear physicist, had put together a nuclear development research center at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Bernie and all nine of his siblings ended up moving to Gainesville that year. Upon moving to Florida, young Bernie began asking around at local music stores who the best young guitar player was, and one name kept coming up, Don Felder. Don had been in a local band called The Continentals, and that band had fallen apart when the other guitarist, Stephen Stills, yes, that Stephen Stills, had disappeared first for Tampa and then later for Latin America. Don and Bernie formed a fast friendship. Don, not yet 16, and Bernie, the wise elder at 17, began to teach each other the things that they knew. Bernie showed Don all of the bluegrass and Chet Atkins things that he knew, while Don showed Bernie all of the rock and roll guitar that he had been learning. The two guitarists would go on to form a new band, and a decade or so later would both end up in the Eagles, while Bernie's little brother Tom, also a guitar player, ended up joining another band called Mud Crutch. But that's another story for another time later on. Chris Hillman, meanwhile, was still in California, but now without a band, without a job, but he's still obsessed with bluegrass music.